No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, former NFL general manager Mike Tannenbaum describes why the NFL's potential new playoff structure could mean drastic changes for the league. There's two H's that apply at the end of the year, health and home field. And when you're the one team that has the home field advantage and you have the body get healthy, I think that's going to give you advantage over those other teams. So it will make the regular season hugely consequential. Plus, former MLB player Bill Ripken defends old school baseball thinkers. It just seems that over the past few years, all the talk about the new metrics and all the analytics that are entering into the game, it almost gives the connotation out there that the old school guy never used numbers or information. And I just wanted to establish that that's not true. Also, author Jerome Weitzman describes how the Philadelphia 76ers process divided the basketball community. Something about the way they went about their business set off this entire culture war that kind of drove people on every side mad. And I think that's kind of what makes this story interesting and a little different. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to the longtime Major League infielder and Emmy Award-winning baseball commentator, Bill Ripken. But first, we're going to talk some NFL with our own Mike Tannenbaum, a longtime NFL executive, one of our NFL insiders. Mike, thank you for joining us here on The Sporting Life. Hey, great to be with you, Jeremy. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. And and it's always a pleasure having you on the show. You have such keen insights into what's going on. So I'm going to lay it all out there. Uh, is Tom Brady ever going to play for the Patriots again? I believe so. I think when the rubber beats the road, Jeremy, I think he stays there. They have a good offensive line, especially if David Andrews, their talented center, comes back. They could franchise their guard, Joe Tooney. So when it's all said and done, I would think that he'll be back. I know others see it uh, differently, but um, we will finally find out soon enough. If it's not New England for Brady, and there have been so many other destinations that have been thrown into the conversation. How do you handicap it if it's not New England? You know, I, I say on paper, Tennessee makes a ton of sense because of Mike Rabel, their head coach. He was a defensive coordinator in New England. John Robinson knows him from his days in the New England front office. I think one team that's under the radar that makes a ton of sense to me is Tampa Bay because last year they were eighth overall in defense, 10th uh, overall in defense in their last eight games. They got two really good receivers in Chris Godwin, Mike Evans. They got a couple good tight ends in OJ Howard and Cameron Bretts. So I think, uh, Tampa Bay could make a lot of sense as well. And what does that mean exactly, uh, in terms of the future of Jameis Winston? Yeah, that's a big variable heading into free agency. There's so many things to like about Jameis. Obviously, the 30 touchdown passes, but, um, I was raised in this business that oftentimes your opponent's going to lose the game before you ever have to win it. And obviously the 30 interceptions, seven pick sixes. If they just had a B quarterback last year with that underrated defense, they would have competed for a playoff position. We're speaking to Mike Tannenbaum, the former NFL executive who is now an ESPN NFL insider. And that raises the question, the Jameis Winston situation. He's not the only one out there. At what point, as an executive uh, for a front office and a coaching staff, when when do they have to make the decision uh, in terms of the development of somebody you've invested in, you used a high draft pick on at the quarterback position where you're going to 
you're all in or it's time to uh, to move on. How, how do you how hard is it to make that decision, Mike? Jeremy, that's one of the hardest decisions to make. When, when do you give up on the young, hopeful, ascending player? And in particular, when you look at the quarterback position, Rich Gann invented Testaverde. You know, to a certain extent, you can make the argument for uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Sometimes it just takes a while, and he has progenist talent. So I think it's a painful, difficult decision. But I think you go back to his days at Florida State, he has turned the ball over a lot. And um, if I was Tampa Bay, given how well they played defensively, I would make a change. At this point in the year, and we're talking in the first week of March, the combine is over, the draft is still, what, like six weeks away, something like that. What does it look like in an NFL front office uh, at this point on the calendar? By far the best time of year. This is when you're putting <laughs> your strategy together and you're juxtaposing free agency and the draft. And what I mean by that, when you look at the middle class of the veteran wide receiver market, and just to pick a name, Robbie Anderson, in my opinion, he lost a ton of money based on the depth of the draft at that position because if you need a representative wide receiver, you can certainly get one in the third or fourth round this year's draft, not pay a Robbie Anderson type, and then go spend your money someplace else. This is a year in which there is, it seems beyond a consensus, it's unanimity that Joe Burrow should be the number one pick. How do you feel about that conventional wisdom and the fact that it's entirely unopposed? Well, there's two concerns you would have. One is Urban Meyer knows a lot about quarterback play, and Joe Burrow started his career at Ohio State, Jeremy, and transferred because he couldn't beat out Dwayne Haskins. Um, that That's a little bit of a concern. Dwayne Haskins is certainly a, a good player. I certainly wouldn't put him in the elite category. And then secondly, he had one year of fantastic production, and Mike... And, and I would take Joe Burrow just to be clear, but if Justin Herbert was playing quarterback at LSU behind that line and those weapons, not so sure how much different the result would have been. So where is Herbert's stock right now? It's extremely high with me because of his character, his production, his prototypical size. If you look at how the season ended in particular, Pac-12 championship game against Utah, Rose Bowl against Wisconsin, MVP of the Senior Bowl, threw the ball very well last week in Indy, so... I think he's competitive. I think he's answered the bell uh, every step of the way, and um, I don't know what he's missing. Someone's going to have to show me why he should be a top-five pick. We're speaking again with Mike Tannenbaum. And, Mike, um, the Combine, as I said, is over. Who who gained the most at the Combine? Whose stock went up the most uh, after that experience? I would say maybe, uh, and it was probably already high candidly, but maybe uh, Makai Becton. 364-pound offensive lineman from Louisville who ran a 5-1. That's faster than Jimmy Garoppolo at 364 pounds. It's crazy. I mean, that that like if you really just think about that, I mean, that's insane. So um, he was a good player heading into it, but just to see that happen is is fascinating. I'm curious, and maybe it's because I'm I'm going to speak to him for for outside the lines tomorrow in Atlanta. But I'm going to talk to Jalen Hurts, who's had one of the most interesting college careers anyone's ever had, of course, uh, at Alabama and then at Oklahoma. And this season, runner-up for the Heisman Trophy uh, as a graduate transfer over there, didn't have to sit out. Um, you know, he, he's been a winner. But you know, you mentioned Joe Burrow getting benched for. Or, you know, not winning the job against Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State. Obviously, he lost the job to Tua at Alabama. Uh, apparently, he had a great combine. What are your thoughts about Jalen Hurts? Very intriguing. To me, the axiom, the tape sets the floor and the character sets the ceiling, it really applies to him from a standpoint of he threw the ball better than I thought. 
he broke a lot of tackles playing quarterback at both Alabama and Oklahoma. I would love to take him in the third or fourth round and see where it could go. You know, there was another player, Josh Dobbs, who was drafted in the fourth round by Pittsburgh. He gets traded Jacksonville. Very intriguing player that keeps getting better and better. Josh Dobbs has incredible character. I put it up there with Jalen Hurts, and I think Hurts is really, really intriguing to me. Of course, everything we're talking about, these could all be moot points if things don't go well in terms of labor negotiations at this point or over the next 12 months. And where it stands now as we speak on uh, Wednesday, March 4th, we understand a full vote of the rank and file, the 2,000 players approximately in the NFLPA, is coming soon on the proposal that the owners offered up a couple weeks ago. Where do you see this going? Uh, I hope it gets done. I've negotiated for years, Jeremy. I don't think it's a perfect deal, but there are no perfect deals. And when you look at apples to apples, um, a player that's coming in this year as a rookie from an increase in minimum would earn an additional $495,000, and 60% of the NFL makes the minimum. So... Um, there's some give and take in there, obviously, with the 17 games. But when you look at the last less padded practices, I think that helps. Obviously, one less preseason game, not overly consequential, but certainly helps. Um, and you look at some of these uh, health sort of proxies that they have in there in terms of additional coverage. They have uh, places where players could get free screening for, I believe, like it's life or at least for 20 years. So there's a lot of subtle things in there in addition There'll be a couple of additional roster spots, a couple of additional practice squad players. So, again, do I think it's a perfect deal, Jeremy? No, but I think it's it's a it's a pretty good deal for both sides. It's interesting to me, Mike, right? Because you could argue the biggest story in sports in this country over the last. 12, 13, 14 years has been the advancement of our knowledge about the effects of brain trauma. And football's been right in the middle of that story. And anecdotally, anyway, at this point, a couple weeks after the CBA was offered up, this proposal by the owners and the league, uh, it, it, it seems like um, the younger players uh, who aren't superstars, who aren't rich, are going to be willing to, that's the way, you know, it's been handicapped so far to sign off on that 17th game and the extra playoff games. Now, there's some things on the other side on the health equation. You know, they're going to limit practices, may, maybe take away one of the preseason games, I understand. Does it surprise you? Will it surprise you, Mike, if the players um, agree to more games even set against the backdrop of what we now know about head trauma? And also, I should say, what we don't know. Well, that's a, you know... Very interesting point. I think more than the number of games, Jeremy, it's about how we play in practice. And I think Roger Goodell has been excellent um, as a thought leader in this space in terms of the game is a lot safer, uh, just in terms of where you could hit a player, helmet-to-helmet contact. Uh, how we practice is dramatically better. There's a lot less contact overall in practice. So I think if we get away from the actual number of games and really keep focusing on how we play when we do play is more important and I think um, we've gotten to a place where the game's still exciting. It's the best sport in the world. And it's, just, again, I would argue that it's not perfect, but it's dramatically safer than it once was. We're speaking to Mike Tannenbaum, the longtime NFL executive who now works with us at ESPN, about the state of the NFL, the CBA negotiations, uh, and the vote that we were expecting to take place soon from the whole rank and file. And it's different this time around. I heard Dominique Foxworth, who used to be the president of the NFLPA when he was playing, talk about how, I think, Ten years ago, the last time the negotiations um, 
uh, were taking place that, you know, th- there was a united front presented by the players. And even if ultimately he didn't agree with something, they decided to vote together to show a united front. This time around, we had the executive committee of the PA voting, I think it was six to five, not to pass along uh, the proposal to the rank and file. Then we had uh, the player reps themselves voting in the other direction, 17, 14 to one. And now we're hearing a split among some of the big stars saying, no, the guys who've made a lot of money already, uh, who would, you know, if there's a work stoppage, would presumably lose a year of salary because they're not going to get back on the back end. And we're hearing the younger players who are paid less, who think maybe they'll be stars in a few years saying, no, I'm, I'm willing to play that extra game, uh, for a bigger share of the pie. Does the, does the division, the lack of United Front this time around, how does that strike you? Uh, I love D. Smith's, uh, what, what he said, which is democracy is messy. Everybody has a point of view. and The executive director of the PA. Yeah, and um, look, you have whatever it is, 16, 1,700 members. You're not going to make it unanimous on their front. And again, I think there's a lot more good in that deal than bad. And I think they're going to have discussion. And I would challenge a player, if they don't like the deal, okay, no problem. What's your suggestion? You're not just going to walk in, wave a magic wand, and tell 32 owners it's 16 games, but we want everything else here. My understanding, and I don't know all the numbers intimately, Jeremy, but I believe there's upwards of a additional $6.5 billion. So The difference between 47% and 48.5% of total revenues. Yeah, that th- those are the numbers we're hearing, something like that. Yeah, exactly. So therefore, I, I, I've seen some of these high-profile players have a problem with the system, but again, um, what's your idea and how are you going to be able to implement it? Speaking with Mike Tannenbaum and, and Mike, in terms of the practicalities for front offices now, as we're in this kind of CBA limbo where so much could be changing in the near future, possibly, how does that affect the way they're thinking about the draft, about free agents, about transition tags and franchise tags? I mean, can they do anything now? Yeah, right now it's a hurry up and wait. I've talked to a lot of my friends around the league. They're just waiting. You know, there's some teams that have 15, 20 free agents. Nobody knows what the rules are. You don't know if you're writing a contract for a 16-game season or a 17-game season. Um, those are all things that are going to have to be factored into to the you know variables in terms of executing the contract once we know what the rules are in terms of are we in the last year of the collective bar agreement or are we, you know, in the first year of a new – or this could still be the last year with a new 10-year extension tacked on, so – until we know what the player vote is, there's really not a lot to do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I don't know the calendar intimately the way that you do, but it would seem like there there are you know some uh, very big issues uh, at hand, and until they're resolved, we know what's going to happen in the future. For instance, like you know, it's hard for Tom Brady to make a decision or anyone to make a decision about Tom Brady because of the dominoes of how salary cap works and who else could be signed or franchised, that kind of stuff. Right? It's 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 complicated. That's exactly right. And until we know what the rules are, again, I think we're going to be in a big holding pattern. From your perspective, Mike, having done this uh, for so long and being so closely associated with the league for so long and now covering the league, you know, a few years ago, people talked about NFL fatigue when they added the Thursday game and, you know, ratings, ratings dip there. And it might have been more related to the political uh, situation, people's interest in the presidential election, 2016, all that. We don't know exactly. But there was a feeling like, you know, don't kill the golden goose. Don't give them too much content. But it seems everybody thinks, I mean, I shouldn't say everybody. It seems a lot of people think that 17 is just a no brainer. 
from the owner's perspective and the league's perspective, and more playoff games are a no-brainer. Do you feel the same way? Uh, I think it's what we've seen is it's the one product that has withstood basically the DVR, meaning that a lot of shows can get shifted or their stream, be it on Netflix or whatever. Our product's the one product that is ratings have remained incredibly strong and consistent, and because of it, there's such great demand. And we could sit here and talk about it's gambling or fantasy football, the sport itself, whatever the reasons, the numbers objectively will back it up based on any metrics. Therefore, the theory is we have an incredible product. It's been consistent for a long period of time. Why not add to that product incrementally? And with that will flow these incredible numbers that you've already alluded to, Jeremy. And and then, therefore, the pie will be collectively bigger for everybody. And that's really, at the end of the day, the rationale behind it. Like, we, we've had this incredible run, and everyone has had uh, participated to make it successful, be it the players, the owners, sponsors, our broadcast partners here on ESPN, amongst many others. And then, therefore... Let's keep growing the pie, which, again, has benefited everybody involved. How do you feel about only one team in each conference getting a bye? I don't like it because if you look at the NFC, um, you could take Philadelphia, San Francisco, Green Bay, maybe the Rams, you could argue, but and say plus or minus 5%, you have three or four teams that are lumped in there together. And the one team that gets the bye, there's two H's that apply at the end of the year, health and home field. And when you're the one team that has the home field advantage and you have the body get healthy, I think that's going to give you a disparate sort of uh, advantage over those other teams. So it will make the regular season hugely consequential. Mike, we lean on you for your insights and your knowledge. Thank you so much for providing them again here on The Sporting Life. Thanks, sir. We appreciate it. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's been a long time since Moneyball, Michael Lewis's blockbuster bestseller about the remaking of the Oakland A's, changed the way so many people think about baseball. In the last 20 years, new statistics, new analytics, new ways of looking at the game have fundamentally altered our concepts of excellence on the diamond. Well, Bill Ripken is here to say slow down. The former major leaguer and Emmy Award winning analyst is the author of a new book, State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I appreciate your time, Jeremy. Bill, well, what kind of tensions are there between what you identify as old and new school baseball? Well, I think first and foremost, if you're dealing with a true old school tree, there's probably a couple branches on that tree that are borderline bullyish. And I think if you're dealing with the extremist new true uh, new school tree, there's a couple branches on that tree that have a little bit of smugness and arrogance that go with it. And I believe that the branches that I mentioned, old and new, will never get along and probably shouldn't get along with anybody else on their tree as well. So uh, the one thing that I wanted to set out when I wrote this book, Jeremy, was I just wanted to establish the fact that old school baseball guys have always used numbers and information. And it just seems that over the past few years, all the talk about the new metrics and all the analytics that are entering into the game, it almost gives a connotation out there that the old school guy never used numbers or information. And I just wanted to establish that that's not true. And not just that, Bill, but also it kind of leaves the impression that all those generations of being in the game and the tens of thousands of games played in and coached and managed um, did nothing really to inform <laughs> these guys about what really matters 
in baseball, right? I, I mean, there's it's kind of there's almost a bias against that kind of experience. Well, there's no question there is, and I, I believe, and it's not the entire new school because I don't think you can ever drop the label like that. But the extreme sides of things kind of look at the old school guy and basically discount the experience. I like to refer to it this way. The old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I don't believe that. I believe you can teach an old dog a new trick if you incentivize the old dog well enough. Now, the new effervescent puppy that's come into the world um, with all the energy and the eagerness, there's something about him that I like, but there's also something true that that dog doesn't know what the old dog already knows. And I don't think you can discount what experience actually means. We're speaking with Bill Ripken, the Emmy Award-winning baseball analyst for MLB Network, about his new book just published, State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball. And the book reminds me, Bill, I think I was hosting Outside the Lines. It was like 15 or 16 years ago, and we're talking about essentially this same issue, but a long time ago. And Michael Lewis from Moneyball was on one side of the discussion, and Jim Fregosi was on the other side. Uh, and it got it got pretty nasty, as I recall, at least in my memory. You know, <laughs> things fade in our memory, and you knew Fregosi well. Um, and it seemed there was no way for these two sides to find common ground. Is that still the case, or or is there, as you suggest in your book, a place at which both sides can meet and benefit from each other's perspective? Well, I think there should be a place, and I think the two guys you were talking about kind of are borderline on the extreme side of old and new. But uh, I love information. I love numbers. In fact, if I dismiss anything in the book um, that's – regarding a new statistic or a new theory or anything else, I use numbers and I use information to back that. So I just don't make a blanket statement that I'm not going to use this. So the idea of having young, um, intelligent people entering into the game is a good thing, but they still have to understand that that old dude that might be down in the clubhouse that's running the game will use any information that's given to him if it fits into his baseball world. And I don't want him to be viewed as rigid or unwilling to change if some of the information he sends back upstairs and says, look, I can't use this, go back to the drawing board. That's where the experience comes into play. But I guarantee if you give any crusty old baseball guy more information that he can use, the inside of his thinking uh, or the inside of the box thinking that he has is going to grow. And then we're all better for it. So I'm all into new ideas, new concepts and things like that. But it has to be applicable to the game. Give me an example, um, Bill, if you can, uh, of an area in which the old school and the new school fundamentally disagree about something. Well, I disagree with a lot of the new terminologies or the new statistics that have something that's weighted, created or adjusted attached to it. Because to me, those are three qualifiers that mean that it's not a real number. Um, I believe the old school guy still believes in the run batted in as a key component to your lineup construction. And the new school theory doesn't believe in the RBI. And I'd like to look no further than the 2019 World Champions Washington Nationals, where Anthony Rendon, by the way, the best hitter, hits third in their lineup, um, led the league in RBIs. And the 4-0 hitter in Juan Soto still had 100-plus RBIs, even though the Rendon led the league. So 
there are ways that you can go about your lineup construction, but there's something that still works with that old school look of your three, four guy in your lineup or better than the other three, four guys. You put yourself in a pretty good place to win. Now, of course, your father, Cal Ripken Sr., I think in the eyes of many people who remember him when he was in the game and he was managing, that there was something about him that just kind of screamed old school. <laughs> Whoa, is that is that a fair representation, characterization, Bill? I would think so. I think Krusty actually gets in there. Um, <laughs> that's that's hard, true. Um, gets in there. Weathered gets in there. But Sr. was very no-nonsense when it came to the baseball world. But yet he always used information. It was the information that was at hand. And seniors thing that probably still sticks with me as much as anything, and I put it in the book, is if you catch it, pitch it, and hit it better than the other team, you win. And that still holds true in today's game. And I think that we've gotten a little bit carried away with all these different things that are trying to enter into the game. And if we forget about the basics, we can be as smart as any team out there, but if we don't execute all the little things on a baseball field, we don't have a very good chance to win. We're speaking with Bill Ripkin about his new book, State of Play, The Old School Guide to New School Baseball. And it's interesting because, of course, um, your family, your dad and yourself, your brother, so steeped in that Orioles way, um, which was an organization that, that changed the game going back to the 50s with Richards and then the 60s with Weaver and so on. And you think about Davey Johnson, uh, who, of course, was with the Orioles and then became kind of the first manager you think of, like with a printout, a computer printout of statistics, making decisions in the dugout, doing double switches and all that because, oh, my God, he's harnessing this new technology. The Orioles really are are cutting edge when you talk about this subject in I guess, uh, a late old school way, aren't they? Well, I, I think information is the key. And you mentioned Davey, and yes, thinking about using the computer, I remember playing for the late Johnny Oates, um, and he had a index card in his back pocket. He didn't necessarily need the computer to put things out. He did his own little research, and he would have as simple as yes, no, attached to the person's name hitting in the lineup, compared to one of the relief pitchers that was coming in the game because he already did the research and he already put the stuff down uh, on his note card. So the fact that now we have iPads in the dugout and people are constantly looking at it, um, that shouldn't mean that the old school guy in yesteryear didn't do his due diligence beforehand and he knew it. And part of the things that the old school guy knew was he paid attention to the games that were played prior to that and his brain was the actual total recall and necessarily didn't need it on a piece of paper. Thank you for joining us. It's a fascinating look at really, you know, what people talk about when they talk about baseball now. The stats, the new school, the old school. Bill Ripkin's new book is State of Play, the old school guide to new school baseball. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you, Jeremy. Thank you, sir. Next on The Sporting Life, author Jerome Weitzman describes how the Philadelphia 76ers process divided the basketball community. Something about the way they went about their business set off this entire culture war that kind of drove people on every side mad. And I think that's kind of what makes this story interesting and a little different. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Sports are supposed to be about winning. 
But sometimes it's about losing to win. Or is it? Is that even really fair? Well, that question is the subject of a new book, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers in the most audacious process, and that's a loaded word, in the history of professional sports. The author, Yaron Weitzman of Bleacher Report, joins us now. Yaron, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. When we talk about the process, when we talk about the 76ers of the last uh, half decade and their strategy, what are the most important things to bear in mind? Um, the most, that's a good way to phrase that. They see, I've done a few of these. No one's phrased it like that yet. Um, the most, <laughs> the most important thing. We to try bear, to be different here on the sporting. Uh, that's good. I respect that. The most important things to bear in mind is I think one is that this is not, they were not the first team to think that tanking. And even though that's a loaded word, you said the process tanking also, they're not the first team to think that tanking is a good strategy. Sports have this incentive system that's a little warped that if you're bad, you get good draft picks. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, Whether that's smart or not is a whole separate conversation in terms of the parity thing. Um, But they're not the first team to do that. And yet something about the way they went about their business set off this entire culture war that kind of drove people on every side mad. And I think that's kind of what makes this story interesting and a little different. I, I mean, in basketball, it's it's an obvious strategy, right? Because um, there is so much value potentially at the very top of the draft and it declines so rapidly, um, you know, unless you really know what you're doing and you've identified somehow a diamond in the rough that nobody else has. But scouting is so advanced now. There's so much group think about these things anyway at this point. It seems obvious in basketball that this would be a strategy. So why why was it? Why does it continue to be so controversial when we talk about the 76ers? Yeah, and it's funny because, like you're saying, it's obvious. Like one of the the math that Hinky did, and I guess math is even like it's just he went back, and he's not the first person. Like he went, if you look back and go through every championship team, Sam Hinky, the general manager. Well, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, Sam Hinky, the general manager. Correct. Yeah, the uh, the huge the guy, the architect of the process. Right. So he went back and looks at every championship team beforehand, and near literally almost every single one has a guy has a superstar and a superstar who was taken top three pick. Almost, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, Shaq whether it's Hakeem Olajuwon, Duncan, you know, go through all these guys. It's not it's the, the, the teams that win and the players that win, it's a small group. So you ask your question, what was different about this? Just people found it. It was almost like people, and it's funny because I don't know, I don't necessarily know why. I mean, I have some theories. He never, he went out of his way and the Sixers went out of their way to never go, to never say, this is what we're doing. And yet something about it and how public they were about it or how upfront, I guess, would be a better word. They were about it. It's like it's like letting everyone in on. Oh, you know, you, we we're all, we all know this is okay, but like you're not supposed to actually acknowledge this. You know, at least pretend. He wasn't pretending. So it's the old lesson in sports: candor kills. Right, exactly. Which again is ironic because one of the things that Hinky got criticized for is he wasn't very candid with, with uh, the media. Though there's a bit of a misnomer. Like he wasn't doing many press conferences. He was talking a lot with reporters on background, meaning I guess the people unaware, meaning. You know, you're talking to a reporter, they can use the information you're informing. I just can't quote you, so don't talk to you. Yeah, I can't quote you. Um, and I think that set off. And then you have all these other things going on. You have younger, you know, this happens as sports are being covered in a different way. And you have younger fan base, younger writers coming in and bloggers and going at the old guard. And we're all covering sports from the general manager perspective. And some people push back on that. And the idea that everyone's a GM and everything is fantasy basketball. And you have all these waves kind of flowing around. 
and to many, this the Sixers and Hinky sort of represented that new wave coming in. We're speaking with Jerome Weitzman of Bleacher Report about his new book, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. You described it as the most audacious. Is it the most successful? Ah, that's a good question. Um, Is it the most successful? I would say, I mean, this is what's funny is that he got short-circuited, right? Like he was was pushed out. I guess it was two and a half, about a little over two and a half years in. Ownership who had signed off on his plan. Um, Basically, the noise got too great. The league wasn't happy. They certainly were... uh, had no issue with ownership or were happy to offer ownership some ideas about who could come in and work alongside and probably eventually replace Sam Hinkie. Um, and the plan got short-circuited. And even still, the Sixers ended up, I mean, you can criticize, but they ended up with two superstars um, and Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And like the math I always do, you know, I mean, it's a process versus results thing. That's what Hinkie would always say. And the idea, and you don't have to buy this, but the idea that championship is, you know, takes a lot of luck to win a championship. Um, whether you win one is kind of a separate conversation. But the math I always kind of go back to is beforehand, Sixers fans, sort of the team was kind of stuck in mediocrity. They had two and a half, three really bad years. And for those three years, they've had about another three plus, let's say, at least another three going forward of games or years where every game matters and the season matters and the Sixers are, you know, they're contenders. So is it the most successful? No, there were mistakes. I mean, they missed on a bunch of draft picks, but I think, you know, if we're going black or white, did it work? I would say yes. I mean, here's the thing, right? Your own philosophically, you know, if the fans understand what the objective is and they, and they know what the process is supposed to ultimately produce, if they don't mind, you know, then then why shouldn't a team, as as long as its objective ultimately is to win, they're not throwing games, it's not the 1919 White Sox, well, why does the league have a problem with it? And I understand that's somewhat a rhetorical question, but but let's let's explore. Right, no, I agree with you, right? Because, like, so the, I, I write this even, like, if I, the, the biggest criticism is, you know, there was the Herm Edwards thing, you play to win the game, right, and they're violating that. But the counter would be, no, we're playing to win the game, just we're worried about the actual championship, not whether we win a game in November against the Pistons, right? And this is our best way to do that. This is a different game, and we're analyzing the playing field differently. And I agree with you. I mean, you know, I live in New York. I think you, you also. I live in New York, right? Knicks fans would would be very excited to be told, you know what, we have a plan. They love a process, losing, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, right? Like lots of teams lose for a few years instead of a plan, which is just like these guys want to come to New York. They'll sign when they're free agents, and we've seen how that worked out. Right, exactly, exactly. And lots of teams lose. And like the ironic part about the Sixers, I think it was only one year they were losing. You know, we'll say they were punting seasons, and yet. They only finished with a worse record, I think, one year when Hinkie was there. Um, like teams would end up with worse records than that, which just shows that, you know, in, in the NBA, plenty of teams get to the bottom without trying to get there. So there's an argument to be made that if you're gonna, like, if there's getting to the bottom on purpose with a with the goal of that helping you get to the top, um, yeah, that's smart. So why? Yeah. So again, when you asked why would the league office be against it, I, I mean, there's other things that happened too. Like there was the Jaleel Okafor, which I talk about the saga. TV ratings is one answer, I suppose. And you yeah. know, people who don't have a vested interest in the 76ers don't want to watch, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a B level, uh, amateurish team on the, on the court when they've got, you know, TV contracts that are worth billions of dollars. We're speaking with your own Weitzman about his new book, Tanking to the Top. And again, you know, on a philosophical level, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the last 
year, I guess, mostly the load management term. You know, players and, and load management. And the question about how that affects competitiveness and what it says about NBA teams and the value of regular season Tuesday night games or Wednesday night games, whatever they happen to be. Do, do you see a difference between the load management conversation and the, the tanking uh, strategy? Um, no, the short answer is I think it's I think it's all at all representative of the issue, not the issue, the combative, the thing that's combating against each, itself in professional sports was you know comp- competing agenda. That's how to phrase it, right? Or incentives. And on the one hand, you know, professional sports are a funky business. Like it's you have thirty different teams, but they're really all partners, and it's partners in one business, and the business matters. Yet there's also the idea of winning, and each team wants to win, and those two things growing the business as a whole. And each team wanting to win, those are different incentives, and they don't always work together. And I think to the low management, the tanking, like that's what happens, and that's where professional sports are funky because of that. But they do have those two superstars. We've been talking to Yaron Weitzman about his new book, Tanking to the Top: The Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports. Fascinating look at something uh, we've all been talking about for the last several years. Yaron, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.